So, do you think you're still up for the journey that uh, Pastor Chris invited us to begin to consider last week? And have you been uh, following along, reading in the Gospel of Mark, using these little bookmark things that we had here to, to give you a chance to kind of be in the Word in between times that we're talking Sabbath morning, and just to allow the story of what we've been talking about to kind of sink down a little bit more fully? If you didn't get a bookmark back last week, and I think Chris mentioned this earlier today, there should be some in front of, the, in front of you on the little pew rack things there. They're not inserted in your bulletin this time, but there's some around. And I wonder, too, if you've given any more thought to just what it is we've gotten ourselves into when we respond to Jesus' invitation to come and follow him and just what that journey might really look like for us if we were really to do that. And so when, when you get involved in a journey, what does it usually look like for you? I mean, do you find yourself thinking more about getting to your destination or what it is you're going to be doing along the way? Or to put it another way, do you tend to focus more on the product, what you get at the end of the trip, or on the process, how it is that you're going about getting there? Are journeys for you more a matter of projects to be conquered or experiences that are to be shared? Now, of course, almost any kind of trip that we can conceive of going on consists of both of those things, both where we're going and how we're going to get there. And so I'm not going to try to suggest to you at all this morning that you need to choose one or the other. Both of those are very much a part of what we're about and what the journey is that Jesus invites us to undertake. But what I would like to suggest to you this morning is that how we understand the way that those two things relate to each other makes a huge difference, not only for where we're going, but for the journey itself. Of course, something else that also impacts our journey and how we understand all of this are the conditions under which we travel. Any kind of thoughtful attempt to try to navigate life's waterways will quickly bring to our mind and we will quickly discover that we are in the midst of very strong currents flowing through our lives coming from our families, coming from the communities that we belong to, coming from our culture, and coming from places that we're not even exactly sure where they come from, but they're there. And even when our oars are in and we're not trying to go any place in particular at all, we still may be moving right along at quite a clip, not even aware of just how powerful and significant the currents are that propel us on through our lives. The illusion that we're standing in one place and not going anywhere is just exactly that. It's an illusion. And it's not until we actually begin to steer it in a different direction against the current that we actually begin to discover just how strong those things are. One of the places where I'm sometimes reminded of this is in the backpack trip that uh, Jerry Kapitsky and I take every summer with a couple of uh, youth, actually about 15 kids usually, or a total of 15 people or so. It's a neat trip where we go up to uh, Tuolumne Meadows and spend about four or five days covering the 25 miles or so down to Little Yosemite Valley. One of the things that uh, makes this trip a little different, though, than your usual backpack trip is that when we get together from the very beginning, 
we intentionally tried to shift the focus of the group away from the destination where we're going and more to the experience of the journey itself, which for some backpackers feels a little unusual and kind of feels like it cuts across the grain a little, particularly those who have a tendency to think of backpacking as kind of this competitive sport in which the goal is to cover as much ground as you possibly can, as quickly as you possibly can, as if you're out to kind of conquer the mountain and take over the trail and, you know, get to the other end. And so having opted for a trip that makes lots of room for enjoying the actual trip itself, the actual journey, and by limiting the distance we cover each day to an average of not more than five miles or so, instead of pressing on through some incredibly beautiful country, we take time along the way for both spending some alone time with God while we're moving along, and to just be a group and enjoy what it is that we're in the midst of. We may stop for a while at various places and just allow the reality of where we are to kind of sink in and enjoy that. Now, that's not to say there aren't some great destination points on the trip that we take. Uh, the first night out, we come to a place called Cathedral Lake, which is an awesome place to be and to camp and to just draw in the grandeur of the beauty around us. Uh, the next night, we stop at a place called Sunrise Camp, which is next to some of these long green meadows that are just intersected everywhere with little streams. It's a beautiful place to be. It's also the home of, very, of a whole bunch of very happy and hearty mosquitoes that hang out in that meadow, which make the trip a little more challenging in some other ways, but it's a great place. By Friday, we're into Little Yosemite Valley, camping alongside the Mercedlet River, and then on Sabbath, we uh, take a trip up to the top of Half Dome and just enjoy the breathtaking view from what's up there, usually have church at the top. But as great as all of those destination points are on this trip, I've got to tell you that the richest part of what is experienced as we do this happens in between the destination points. It happens as we're traveling together. It's in the stuff that happens along the way. The quiet moments of solitude and prayer. Conversations that happen as we're moving along between people. The occasional mishap or equipment malfunction that adds a little spice to the trip. Meals that are prepared and shared, blisters that are treated, occasionally wildlife that's encountered, opportunities to take pictures and see views and explore new places. That's where some of the most rich and meaningful and formative stuff really happens. And yet I am always intrigued by how challenging it can be to steer out of the currents that we're so used to being swept along in and allow ourselves just to embrace the richness of the experience, just to enjoy the journey itself, and to enjoy traveling alongside of those who get to share it with us. How we understand the way the destination and the journey relate to each other, where our focus is as we're moving along the way, can make a huge difference to both of those things. And that, I think, is something that's worth keeping in mind, whether we're loading up our packs and heading for the high Sierras, or whether we're gathering up all that we have and are as we respond to Jesus' invitation to come and follow him. Or as Pastor Chris framed it last week, as we choose life and begin the journey together that Jesus invites us to embark on. 
And as we press on towards the resurrection weekend and the series of sermons that we have for the next few weeks, we're going to want to see not only where Mark is going, but also the ritually formative stuff that happens along the way, the stuff that forms those disciples into who they are when they finally reach that destination. It's all a part of getting there. And one of those places where I'd just like to pause for a few moments this morning, we won't be doing much lingering this morning, but this is one place where we will, is in Mark chapter 3. It's right where we left off last week, beginning with about verse, verse 13, where we find Jesus now doing something a little different than what he's done up to this point. The disciples have all heard the call of Jesus to come and follow him by now, but now they're gathered together on the side of a mountain, And Jesus now formally invites his disciples to join him in the journey in a much more intentional way than they had before. And as we watch and see what happens here, we catch some important glimpses, I think, of just what this journey is about. We're in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, if you want to follow. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Jesus, by the way, still does this, you know, because what you see reflected here, I believe, is just a snapshot of what Jesus does for each one of us when he invites us to come and follow him in a very intentional way. And I think it's worth stopping just for a moment and noticing that precisely because I think so many of us have such a hard time believing that this is really for us. I like the way that Mike Iaconelli uh, describes this a little bit in one of his books, Messy Spirituality. And I'd just like to share with you just a short portion out of that book. Here's what he writes. I often dream that I am tagging along behind Jesus, longing for him to choose me as one of his disciples. Then, without warning, he turns around, looks straight into my eyes, and says, follow me. My heart races, and I begin to run towards him. When he interrupts with, oh, not you, it's the guy behind you, sorry. Well, I don't know if it's ever felt that way for you before, where you read all of the stuff that's going on in the passage and and the things that are happening in the life of the disciples, that it always feel like it's happening for somebody else, that this is really somebody else's call. This is not possibly me, not really me, that Jesus is addressing. But what I want you to hear clearly this morning before we go any farther is that when Jesus calls to him those who he wants, he is calling you. You really are someone he wants there. The invitation is for you to come. It's for all of us to come. And Mark says, they came to him. Now, what I also want you to notice at this point is that Mark does not say, and he came, or that she came to him, but that they came, that they came. We're going to talk a little bit more about they in just a second. But who are these they, anyway, that came? Well, look at verse 16. These are the twelve he appointed, and then we get this list. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. You have to wonder about what kind of people these must be that Jesus initially 
feels the need to nickname them in some sort of way. Anyway, the list goes on. You have Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I don't know if you had wanted to where you would find a much more unlikely combination of people to put together all in one place than this group. You have a zealot and a tax collector all together in the same room. Not exactly the kind of people that you would normally expect to see hanging out together. Jesus calls both of them. You have the quiet, reserved Andrew right alongside of Peter the Mouth. You wonder how that went. There's the passionate James and John, the sons of thunder, Jesus nicknames them. And they're right there with the cautious, analytical Thomas, who often had more questions than answers about things. There were those who would go on to have very high public profiles in the ministry of Jesus and in the history of the early church. We hear a lot about them. And there are those who we hear very little about after this moment. They didn't make the headlines. They don't have big, prominent places in the history books, at least from the kinds of things that we know about. And there is even room for Judas. Judas has a place. In fact, about the only way you can explain this unlikely combination of people coming together at all is the fact that Jesus called them. That's what they had in common. They probably would not have been together for any other reason. And you also notice when you look at this passage that Jesus does not call them to be 12 groups of one, each one doing their own thing, gathering only when it's convenient or when they don't have a better offer to be somewhere else. But as one group of 12, he calls them as a community. Which, of course, to the extent that we are writing the currents of our own culture, you know, where the individual is the supreme unit, really kind of bugs us. Not sure we like that very much. But when we listen carefully here to what is going on in this passage, what may bug us even more than that is that it is Jesus who gets to choose who gets to be there and who doesn't. We don't get to do that. Jesus gets to choose. What Jesus calls us to, whether we like it or not, is not primarily a God and me thing. It's a God and we thing. It's that family thing we've been talking about here in church for a long time now. And the scriptures simply do not give us another option. We're stuck with each other. Well, okay then. Now that Jesus has them, what is he going to do with them? Here's this group of disciples. Well, look at verse 14. Circle back with me a couple of verses and we'll see exactly what his plan was. It says in verse 14 that he appointed 12, designating them apostles. These are the ones that he would be sending out. And then he says three things here that he has for them. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Three things that Jesus is very intentional about. First of all, Jesus says, he calls them to be with him to be with him. Before they are given anything else to say and do, they are called to be with Jesus. 
In fact, you know, when John tells the story of the calling of the disciples, which he writes about in the first uh, chapter of his gospel, and he talks about what it was like when they first met Jesus, the key question that's on their mind then in, in John chapter 1 is, where are you staying? That's what they wanted to ask Jesus. Where are you staying? Because foundational to this following business is being intentional about taking the time to be with the person you're following. You can't follow someone very well that you don't take the time to know. And it's hard to follow someone that you can't seem to keep in focus ahead of you. Being intentional about being with Jesus is foundational. First item on the job description. Second, it says that Jesus was sending them out to preach. He was sending them out to simply speak the truth both to people who would be in positions of power and to those who had none at all. Both of those groups needed to hear clearly and transformationally what this good news of the kingdom was really all about. And third, it says, Jesus was sending them out with his authority to oppose evil in whatever form it manifested itself. To oppose evil in whatever form it manifested itself. And there are lots of ways that evil gets embodied in the world and needs to be opposed. Which is why if we don't want to become one of them, we need to remember that our authority, our doing things in the name of Jesus, is not about words that you tag on at the end of a prayer as if it was some kind of an incantation. But what it really means to do something in someone's name, especially in biblical understanding, is, is to live according to the character of the person and to act in harmony with the principles and values that they embody. The character of Jesus, the principles and values of his kingdom, that's what it means to do things in the authority of his name. Which is exactly what we see reflected, both in what Jesus went on to say and in what he did, preaching and teaching and confronting embodied evil. As Mark goes on to describe in the journey he describes, as these disciples who have now more intentionally decided to follow him sign on for the journey and continue with him through the chapters that follow. And here's where we get to the hard part of what we need to do this morning. I wish we really had time to cover the section of scripture that has been assigned to me to do today. Uh, there are so many things going on in the events that come next, and it's hard to pass them by without giving them the attention and the detailed look that they deserve. I feel a little bit like I'm taking a hungry group of people on a tour of a restaurant, and we're kind of going along, looking at all the food that's been laid out there, and you get to see it, and you get to smell it, but we're really not going to take time to stop and eat any of it today. You just get to enjoy looking at it there. But don't worry, you've got time this week as you're reading on in the Gospel of Mark, if you want to circle back and take some time to look at some of these places. And yet, even having said that, when we take a step back and just try to hit the high points and look at the summary of what it meant now when Jesus began to speak and when he began to interact with people, with a group of people who were taking this very seriously and were intentionally following him, there is a big picture that starts to emerge that may actually help us see some things that might slip by us otherwise. And so, with that in mind, we'll go ahead and see if we can take a look at some of these stories that cluster together and follow uh, following this introduction of the disciples here. So then what is it that we see? What are these formative events now that are going to shape the disciples as they move towards the big weekend in their life? 
the resurrection weekend. Well, if you have your Bibles there, let's continue to see what happens. As we follow along in chapter 3, we discover that already the religious leaders are beginning to respond to what Jesus had just done that Pastor Chris talked about last week, the healing of the man in the synagogue with a withered hand on Sabbath. Already the religious leaders begin to show the opposition that began to harden that day. And you know, there's something that happens here when people are locked in a system where religious and relational patterns, ones that they have become used to, ones that they have been raised with, ones that they've been living for a very long time, when they are not healthy and when they are not life-giving, when someone comes along and intentionally begins breaking those patterns and choosing life, it is very disturbing to the people who are standing by because it upsets the balance of things. No one likes it when the balance of things is upset. And you would be amazed at how people would much rather stay in a place that is not healthy and painful than to upset the balance. And that's what Jesus had done. And so to try to get that back in a way that I'm sure the religious leaders of the day felt was fair and balanced, they began to spin what had taken place in the synagogue that day. They claimed that Jesus was really acting on Satan's authority, not on God's authority, that it was through the prince of Beelzebub that healing was taking place. And when we read the passage, we find out that even his own family, at least at this early part of his life, they look at the situation and decide that it really is Jesus, after all, who's creating the problem here. And they try to put a stop to his ministry. They try to quiet him down, take him away, and tell him to be quiet. He was making people uncomfortable. This is not the way we do things around here. And then we find Jesus in the wake of all of this, reminding his followers that one of the things you can expect when you begin to step away from patterns that are not healthy and you choose life and you stay faithful to your choice to choose life, the reaction of those who find this distressing will sometimes mean that even those closest to us may not understand or know how to support or even want to. Which prompts Jesus to say this famous line at the end of the story, Whoever does God's will, that is my brother and sister and mother. Well, then, with that little bit of a, a feel for what it's like as soon as they begin this journey out of this intentional decision that they have made together, we begin to move on into chapter 4, and Mark gives us there an overview of some of the key parts of the teachings of Jesus. We have a collection of parables. One of them you saw just this morning as the children had a chance to act it out on the platform for us, the parable of the sower. It's intriguing to me that Jesus starts out by painting a picture of what the experience of people would be like as this message of the kingdom began to spread to others, and perhaps even as the disciples encountered it in their own life. In the parable of the sower, Jesus paints a picture of what we can expect. We see that at times, this message of the kingdom, when it begins to be embodied, will seem to get snatched away before we can even get a hold of it. It's like we just glimpse it for a moment and it's gone. It just never has a chance to really, for us to really get our hands wrapped around it. He says at other times it springs up quickly enough to look pretty good and may sustain itself for a while. But because the root system stays fairly shallow and never really sinks down into what the kingdom is about, or never really sinks down into the deeper things that actually drive us in our own lives,
When the heat is on and hard times come, the kingdom part withers, and we're left with not much. And still others, he tells us, that because it is trying to grow up in the midst of too many other things going on, too many things that are crowding into all the available spaces in our lives and draining off our energy and blocking the sun, the life of the kingdom gets choked out. And because of that, it doesn't have the chance to really produce the way it could. But then Jesus says there are those times when the roots go deep and the soil is good and the message of the kingdom has a chance to be what it wanted to be and life flourishes. He tells that story not only to illustrate what they can expect as they begin to spread this message of the kingdom to others and watch the way it's received, but as they encounter those seasons in their own lives where they embody all of those kinds of soil and begin to understand a little more about themselves as well. Then, immediately following that parable, if you follow along in chapter 4 here, there are some shorter ones. Jesus reminds us the kingdom is not something that we hoard just for us, but it's something you put on a lampstand so that everyone can benefit from it. He goes on to say that it's something that's alive and growing, not something that's static and dead. It's something that... uh, embodies attitudes and values which might seem very small to the world around us, kind of like a mustard seed, but which turn out to be huge and deeply significant when they're viewed from the standpoint of the kingdom. All of those parables become the way that Jesus begins to launch what this is about as he begins to speak the truth about what the kingdom of God is like. And then farther on in chapter 4, as we continue to move, we begin to see that not only is it in what Jesus is saying that the kingdom is being portrayed, but also we begin to glimpse the kingdom in what Jesus is doing. And there are a series of incidents in the lives of people where we begin to watch the formative experiences that the disciples experienced that would help them understand just what the kingdom of God was about. And again, we're just going to hit the highlights of these as we go through so you can begin to see the, the collection of what's happening here. We find out immediately that there are storms arise in which it's not always clear to understand exactly what Jesus is doing or exactly why this is happening. And even though Jesus brings the disciples through the storm, it tells us, they are still left with questions, maybe more questions than answers, questions both about what an awesome God this is and about what the storm was about in the first place. Then as we continue on in in places like chapter 5, we find out that following Jesus sometimes leads us across to the other side of the lake. We don't like going to the other side of the lake. If you go to the other side of the lake, you wind up around people that we don't normally associate with there. They make us feel uncomfortable. And yet Jesus takes his disciples there to this place, and they discover that acting to bring about healing to those whose lives are inundated with literally legions of problems, often meets with the opposition of those who find this kind of activity bad for business. And they ask Jesus to please go home. Then as you go further into chapter 5, you find that they do indeed find a story closer to home. They come back, and Jesus is confronted by a guy by the name of Jairus. Now, Jairus is not one of these guys from the other side of the lake. Jairus is the synagogue ruler, He's a nice guy. He's well-respected. He's well-known. He's loved. He has influence. He has power. And in this story, he also has a 12-year-old daughter who is dying. 
And he comes to Jesus seeking for help. Jesus responds at once to his request, as you would expect, as people would have expected. And they begin to hurry on their way to her home. But on the way, Jesus is touched anonymously by someone in the crowd, by a woman who was not respected and had no power and was viewed by everyone around her as someone somewhat less than everyone else. And instead of the defilement that she had passing to Jesus, which is what everyone expected would happen, something amazing happens. Healing passes from Jesus to her. And no one ever would have known were it not for the fact that Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. And it was to the distress of those who were concerned with the needs of those who were clearly more entitled than this woman that Jesus stopped. He stopped because he wanted to make sure that people knew that in the kingdom of God, the needs of the poor and the marginalized were not made to wait until the needs of the entitled were taken care of. Both those daughters, the passage makes clear, were healed that day and cared for. And the stories go on. We could continue to take you through the stories in the Gospel of Mark, and I wish we had time to stop on each one of them. But in all of the ways that we watch these stories unfold and in the stories that will unfold in the weeks ahead, as we watch this formative process continue on in the lives of the disciples, we see that when we choose life, not only are we selecting this glorious destination that we're all going to wind up at together someday, but as we intentionally decide to be with Jesus, aligning our life with his, following where he leads, speaking truth to power, and to people who have no power. And in a manner that is faithful to the character of Jesus and the values of his kingdom, opposing evil in whatever form it embodies itself. And if you're short of places to oppose evil these days, I can assure you it's embodied in plenty of places. When we do this, he promises that we will be in for quite a ride, both as we try to keep our eyes on Jesus through the various seasons of our own lives, and as we follow him through storms and questions, and at times very much against the current that flows in our own culture, and perhaps even in our own families. As we follow Jesus, as we reach out to struggling people on the other side of the lake, among those people that clearly we wouldn't want to be around, as well as to those closer to home, affirming that God's kingdom knows nothing about distinctions between those we see as entitled and those we don't. It's a journey that is not always easy. It's not always comfortable. It's not always safe. And often it is not understood either. But it is a journey of joy. There is a richness in both the wonder and the wildness of what God invites us to be a part of and what we experience along the way that you cannot find anywhere else. And it is there along the way as we keep close to Jesus and what he's about that the truly transformational stuff happens, and not just for people whose lives we may touch, but for our own as well.
There is a joy in the journey. There's a light we can love on the way. There is a wonder and wildness to life, and freedom for those who obey. And all those who seek it shall find it. A pardon for all who believe. Hope for the hopeless, inside for the blind. To all who've been born of the Spirit and who share incarnation with Him, who belong to eternity stranded in time and weary of struggling with sin. Forget not the hope that's before you and never stop counting the cost remember the hopelessness when you were lost there is a joy in the journey there's a light we can love on the way there is a wonder and wildness to life and freedom for those who obey and freedom for those who obey. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we honestly don't know what you were thinking when you invited all of us to join you in this journey and when you entrusted to us the sharing of the message of your kingdom. But we are grateful for the opportunity to come along and we pray that in the midst of our desire to intentionally choose to come to you to speak the truth and power and love and to oppose evil in whatever form it manifests itself, that you would be alongside of us, that you would guide us as you guided your disciples, that you would continue to teach us when we still don't get it, and that you would continue to work in our lives to bring about the transformation that will reach its climax when we do get to the end of the journey and celebrate together with you what we celebrate in a few weeks that we look forward to in anticipation now. Thank you, Lord, for being our traveling companion along the way and our guide. We pray in Jesus' name.